Years ago, when I was newly ordained and living in an unfamiliar community, I asked my boss, as a local election approached, whom I should vote for. Sensing that I felt a need to lend my support to just the right candidate, my boss told me a story. He explained that a couple of years earlier, as the Thanksgiving Day Parade came through the city of Montgomery, and he was standing in front of the church wearing his vestments before the 10 o'clock service started, the mayor of Montgomery walked up to him to offer a word of appreciation. Thank you, the mayor said to Robert, for praying for me by name in your church every Sunday. It was a genuine offer of gratitude, but then the mayor took it one step further and he said, I will try to honor your prayers by being a good Christian mayor. He was surprised by my boss's response. Robert looked at him and said, why don't you focus on being a good mayor and let me take care of the Christian part? <laughs> it surprised me a little bit too when I heard the story, why wouldn't an Episcopal priest care about whether his mayor reflected the values that we share as followers of Jesus? Why wouldn't that matter at all to him? Why? Because ultimately, we can't trust someone who talks and thinks and acts like us any more than someone who doesn't. Identity politics have plagued human beings for as long as there have been politics. In ancient Israel, the people of God wanted a king. They begged the prophet Samuel and God to give them a king, but the prophet and God didn't think that was a very good idea. Yet the people insisted. So the prophet explained that if you have a king, that king is going to take your land from you. He's going to conscript your sons into his army and your daughters into his servants. He will tax you in order to meet his own needs. You don't want a king, the prophet explained. Oh, yes, we do, they responded. So finally, God and the prophet gave in and allowed them to pick a king. And whom did they pick? Saul. And why did they pick Saul? Because, as 1 Samuel indicates to us, Saul was the tallest and most beautiful man in Israel. <laughs> he was a natural choice because when the people looked at Saul, they saw a taller, more handsome version of themselves. And how did that work out? Well, at first it went pretty well. But eventually, greed took over, and by the end of Saul's reign, he had received a generational curse that would haunt the people of Israel for centuries. We all project onto our leaders idealized versions of ourselves. And why? Because what we really want is to be in charge. And we think that as long as the person in charge is like us, as long as they think like us and act like us, they'll do what we would want them to do. They'll pursue the causes that we care about, that we would pursue. And in part, that's right. Because if we ended up in their shoes, we would end up just as self-interested and self-serving as they are. And how does that work out? 
Woe to the shepherds, the prophet Jeremiah declares. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. It is you, shepherds, who have scattered my flock, have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Jeremiah reminds us that for generations, God's people had been ruled by kings who had led God's people astray. They had taxed the poor to give to the rich. They had condemned widows' houses in order to make way for their own grand palaces. They had put upon the shoulders of God's people a heavy burden in order that the taxes they collected might be given to foreign rulers to buy a little more time for Israel's king to remain on the throne. Prophets like Jeremiah describe that behavior as going after false gods. But by that, they don't mean something as simple as kneeling before an idol or praying to a foreign god. They mean that the kings and because of the kings, God's people had forgotten what it meant to belong to God. God's people are supposed to worship the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God's people are supposed to follow the one who led them through the wilderness, feeding them when they were desperate. God's people are supposed to belong to the one who sheltered them when they were vulnerable, protected them when they were under attack. And you can't do that. You can't belong to Israel's God if you're trampling on the poor and on the needy. For generations, God's people had looked to their kings to be the ones who would teach them and remind them what it means to belong to God. But what they got instead were kings who cared more about themselves than the people they served, which is to say, the people got more of themselves, more of us. How can anyone do any better? How? When the failure of human nature is a guaranteed outcome, how can things be any different? Well, the prophet Jeremiah gives us a peculiar vision of another way. The days are surely coming, he says, when the Lord will raise up for David a righteous branch who will reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. But notice how the prophet identifies that leader, not by name, but by God's name. So secondary is the identity of the person who, in Jeremiah's vision, sits on the throne, that he's not even known by anything except the Lord is our righteousness. Not the king is our righteousness, or the leader, or the priest, or the prophets, but the Lord is our righteousness. You might have noticed that because I find it too narrow and limiting, I prefer not to use masculine images to describe God. This part of the biblical text gives us the word, the Lord, and it's in all capital letters, which signifies to us that it means God's name, God's proper name, not just any God, but Israel's God, the God who is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, the God whom the story of salvation gives us as the one who cares for the vulnerable and the oppressed. That God will be our righteousness. And what is righteousness? 
in her recent book about Advent, Fleming Rutledge notes that in both the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament, when we read righteousness or justice, we're reading actually the same word that is translated for us both ways. And she also notes that at the root of that word in both languages, the word is both a noun and a verb. So when Jeremiah envisions a ruler who will be the Lord is our righteousness, Jeremiah imagines a leader who both enables and steps aside so that God's justice and the judgment necessary for that justice, God's righteousness and the making rightness of it, they all fold together in whoever it is in that place. For God's people, that's a big change. The prophet wants us to stop looking for a particular leader who will remind us about God and instead start looking for God, God's self. What might that look like? What might it look like if we stopped searching for an idealized projection of ourselves and instead searched for God, for the Lord is our righteousness? It might look like a community that puts at the very core of its identity, the very center of its value, that which is reflected to us in the one who died upon the cross. What does the Lord is our righteousness look like? It looks like the penitent thief turning to Jesus and instead of seeing a condemned prisoner sees a king prepared to enter into that king's majesty for whom the sign above his head was not an expression of irony but an expression of truth. This is the king of the Jews. For that penitent thief he saw not an expression of weakness but an expression of God's majesty. Because in his mind, in his eyes, God's kingdom isn't a kingdom of power or a kingdom of wealth, a kingdom of security or a kingdom of prosperity, but a kingdom of love and generosity and sacrifice and humility. Who is our righteousness? To whom do we look to be God's justice in the world? Where do we search for the one to make right all that is wrong? Whoever that is, whether it be ourselves or something else, whoever that is, that is the one whom we are proclaiming as Lord of lords and King of kings, the ruler of our lives. As followers of Jesus, as those who have seen in the crucified one how God's majesty is shown to the world, we know the answer to the question. And yet we ask again, who is our righteousness? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.